You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome. You are listening to Two for Tea. My guest this week is James Kierstead. James is a classicist with a particular interest in ancient and modern democracy. Besides his scholarly papers, he has also written for Quillette, a paper that I can't pronounce actually, Aotearoa Anarchist Review, um, Tricycle, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and most importantly, of course, ARIO. And I will link to his ARIO article in the show notes. Uh, I, I think the, the Aotearoa Anarchist Review acronym is just pronounced R. R. <laughs> Marvellous. So, James, the first thing that I wanted to talk to you about is um, free speech. And I have been uh, – so I – I um, often argue with people on Twitter who talk about Western values because I think these values should be called universal liberal humanist values. But someone recently told me that the reason that we call them Western values is because they are, uh, these values stem from Greek democracy in the ancient Greek world as opposed to values that stem from the other kind of major cultural player, the ancient Chinese world. So um, that that is the contrast that's being made when we talk about Western values. I quite like that idea, actually. Um, and I'd like to trace a couple of values today back to um, the Greeks and talk about how they perceived, um, how they perceived them and what the contrasts are with between that and the way we think about those values today. And let's start with free speech. So you have talked about two different Greek concepts of, of free speech, parousia and esegeria, and I will link to your uh, article on this in the show notes. Can you explain to me the difference between those two and why it is that you say that um, parousia is the most is the more important of the two values, but that there is a confusion between those two concepts when people argue about free speech today. Yeah, can I just weigh in on the uh, on the Western culture debate? Yes, please well? do. Because I think that um, I think it's basically right to say that there there are certain Western intellectual traditions that have had an influence on the modern day. I think that there's a sort of naive version of that thesis, which is much too strong and much too simple. And that is that we just inherited democracy from the Greeks and there was sort of, you know, no disjunctions and it was just a very simple pro uh, progress, a very simple process whereby, you know, the ancient Greeks just became a modern Brits or modern uh, Canadians. Now, obviously, that's not the case. Um, at the same time, I think that these Greek ideas were always in tradition. Now, we've got to be careful because these Greek ideas were often uh, perceived in a very negative way in the Western intellectual tradition. So for a long time, the people who wrote history and wrote about the Greeks were, were well off. They were the leisure class. They were aristocrats. 
And they really didn't like the idea of mob rule. And they saw Athenian democracy as mob rule. Um, so there's actually a Western tradition of sort of negativity about Athenian democracy. However, because they were reading all these texts, they were reading Aristotle, they were reading Plato, these guys weren't themselves incredibly positive about democracy, but they discussed democracy and, and they discussed the ideas of Democrats in their own day. And I think that once we get into the early modern period and, and, and the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, when Westerners do start to sort of turn towards or they start to open their minds to the idea that democracy might be a good thing, it's usually Greek arguments that they draw upon. So I, I don't think that um, the fact that the Greeks had democracy sort of automatically meant that Western countries would have democracy later. But I do think that the fact that the democratic ideas were in the Western intellectual tradition, it did help give um, Western countries that, that little nudge, or Western intellectuals that little nudge in a democratic uh, direction. Um, okay, so the two, con- two concepts of free speech that they had in ancient Greece. So parousia is one and isagoria is, is the other. So just very simply in terms of etymology, parousia means something like you can say anything. Um, so pan, you know, um, uh, pan is a common prefix, even in English, it means everything in Greek. Um, so parousia, yeah, you can say whatever you want. Isagoria, the, the prefix there is isos, it means equality. We, we have that um, in, in some English words as well. So it's what one ideal is this very sort of wild, um, uh, crazy kind of free speech idea that you can say whatever the heck you want. And the other ideal is really equality of speech. Is agoria really means equality of public speech more than anything else. But you can see how that would also come to mean free speech, at least within a certain body of people. So the idea that um, citizens, especially uh, or, or uniquely in ancient Greece, male citizens, had um, an equal right to speak in public bodies, uh, that's obviously very close to the idea that, that everybody is free to, to stand up and, and have a say. And... Um, I think in, in much of my writing, I've been interested in the, in the different contexts where these ideas were more emphasized. So they're, they're both around in democratic Athens. But parousia, I see, is um, very much associated with the Festival of Dionysus, with the great theatrical events of, of, of Athenian democracy. So uh, especially comic playwrights. Uh, you find the word in tragedy, too, but uh, comic playwrights like Aristophanes, who have a really kind of hard-hitting, ribald uh, form of comedy, uh, parousia is really strongly associated with guys like that. And Isagoria is a little bit more associated with, um, with, uh, formal political institutions. Um, but I should also say there's, there's actually a, a really important recent paper on this by Alex Gottesman, an American classical scholar. And he says, he changes the emphasis a little bit. He's looked back through all the texts and he says, Isagoria is really not so much about equality of speech in institutions. It's more about um, the speech of equals. So that's what it, what it really means for Gottesman is um, the ability to speak as an equal among other equals. And so if there's a tyrant or there's an oligarch ruling over you, then uh, you, can't, uh, you can't have that kind of equal speech. But if you're among peers, among fellow citizens, then you can't. Thanks. So one of the things that you said in the article that I've read of yours, the one that I will, I will link to, um, is that... When uh, people are defending no platforming and other forms of censorship, uh, they often say that they believe in free speech. Um, and what they are talking about is really a segaria. So um, they feel that it's necessary to silence some voices in order to give 
people who've been traditionally excluded from um, having a voice in public, the opportunity to speak. Um, and you talk about that as a, uh, you say that, in fact, parousia is the value that we should be more firmly championing than asegaria. Can you say more about that, how that relates to modern political um, debates here? Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I don't think there's a, I'm not arguing there's a, there should be a direct one-to-one correspondence between these ancient ideas and how we think of it in the modern world. But I guess I'm just using them to remind ourselves that there, there are sort of different things that we mean when we, when we talk about uh, free speech. And I think that, I mean, one thing that we all, or most people in the academy are completely down with is some kind of seminar norms, right? So in a seminar, you can't just say whatever the heck you want. Um, usually you try and be polite. Um, there may even be some attempt to formally equalize speech. You know, there may even be some attempt to go around the room. I mean, in my own classes, I sometimes, I call it the talking pencil. My students fear it. I hand around a pencil and they all, they all get a few minutes to, to say whatever they want uh, or nothing. And that kind of thing, I mean, we see it also in the very, the most formal occasions, for example, um, in, uh, debates, political debates. So, you know, the recent, you know, we're just watching the Canadian election debates. Um, and they, you know, they literally will time candidates as they speak. Uh, so that obviously does sort of restrict speech in a, in a certain sense, but in, in another sense, it's, it's paying honor to this idea of, of free and equal speech. You want everybody to be able to speak. Um, the problem with that is that you can take it too far. And outside of these very formal uh, contexts, um, the argument for limiting people's speech is, is much more is much more limited. The, the, the thing about a seminar or, or even about an interview is that there's a limited amount of time and there's a certain number of people. And, uh, you know, one person by speaking can take up time that uh, someone else won't get. Now, the rest of the world isn't like that. Even campuses in general aren't like that. So for me, the, the argument is much weaker if someone comes onto your campus, you know, a controversial speaker, Christina Hoff Summers or somebody, and you say, no, 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 we have to stop her speaking because that, you know, that will mean that other people can't speak. For me, that, that situation, um, it, it, it's, it's a much weaker argument because you can just go somewhere else and speak, right? So I think that the idea that we should equalize speech sometimes is a good one, but only in, in, in very restrained uh, contexts. And the, the reason that I think we need to have sort of um, more expansive versions of the idea of free speech as a bedrock concept is just because ultimately things have to be freer, especially in the, in, in the, in the world outside of campus. Um, ultimately, you have to allow people to speak. You can't have seminar norms everywhere, right? Um, and, and I don't think the idea of equalizing speech across the board is a good one because then you'd have to, I mean, you, what, you have to time how much everyone is speaking and make sure some person in Wellington is speaking the same amount as someone in Glasgow. I mean, it, it just makes uh, very little sense. But I, I, I did want to talk a little bit about Azegaria because I, you know, you sometimes hear um, arguments like, you know, you wouldn't just go into a seminar and start swearing. And, and I wanted to sort of respect those arguments because I think it does make sense. So, so it's it's a way of trying to think about uh, free speech that that is um, able to take into account those kinds of examples. I think it also, I mean, for me, the argument that we need to limit people's speech because we need to limit people's speech in all contexts because there are certain contexts within which people will voluntarily self-censor. So, for example, um, if I am sitting in a lecture and I think, 
God, that lecturer's moustache is really ugly. I'm not going to suddenly shout out, your moustache looks awful. Um, and But that kind of voluntary self-censorship in order to um, respect social, in order to comply with social norms that you respect, um, or in order to safeguard your own reputation is very different from the kind of self-censorship which involves not saying things that you believe to be true or that you even think uh, are important, um, uh, importantly need to be said because of your fear of the consequences, the consequences from your employer or from government or from whoever else it might be. So I think those are those are two very different things, and I find them very frequently conflated in people's arguments about speech. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree very strongly with that. I mean, I'd also say that, that there's something else, which is that, you know, you have a controversial speaker come on the campus, um, Christina Summers, let's take her as an example again. And often in these cases, the, the, the censorship side of the argument, you know, what they want will often be, she doesn't get to speak at all on campus. She has to just not do a talk at all. That's that's ideally, you know, what they want, what they're often pushing for, and that doesn't make much sense, even if you're trying to equalize. So if you ha- if you want to honor the norm of isagoria, and it's actually uh, Teresa Bajan, who's an Oxford professor, who I think stressed that students are looking at free speech in this way. Um, but if the students really want to honor equality of speech, isagoria, then there are other things they could do. I mean, they could have Christina Summers to a roundtable, or the, whoever the controversial speaker is. You could say. Okay, we're going to have a conversation with you, but but often it's this it's this very uh, absolutist thing of like let's not uh, let's not allow her to speak at all. Right. Yes. Um, so talking about um, free speech, I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit about the Ario uh, Pegas because Ario Magazine, of course, um, when Malhar Mali, who founded the magazine in 2017, chose a name for it, he chose Ario as short for Ariopagitica, which is the um, impassioned defense for free uh, press that Milton published in 1644 in response to a new proposed act, the Licensing Act, which, um, which required... It required all printers to get all the uh, printers in um, the uh, in Great Britain to get a royal license before printing a book um, or pamphlet, and which severely limited just severely limited the number of things that could be printed. Um, but it also required all publications to be uh, everything to be. Um, read by censors before it was permitted to be published. And I know from my own um, period of study when I was doing my PhD that once the Licensing Act lapsed in 1694 and it was never, um, it was never re- re-established, the number of printing presses immediately exploded and it was the beginning of journalism as we know it because suddenly people were free to publish without fearing without having to to um have things censored and therefore they were also free to criticize the government to make social commentary and um it also made printing enormously much easier and cheaper 
there were some technological developments which helped too. And suddenly everybody was putting out journals and newspapers and it was, it was, there had been occasional um, pamphlets and chapbooks and other informal things that were published in response to specific occasions before that. But that was really the beginning of, of the periodical press as we know it today. So the lapsing of that act made it, made it possible. So I think it's an especially apt name, even though it's kind of the bane of my life because nobody can spell it and everybody calls us Aero and no one can get it right. <laughs> um, but could you talk a little bit about the Areopagus, where, the, where Milton got the idea of the name Areopagitica? Um, it, it's, this, is a good this is a good example of how I think there is a, a distinctive West, Western cultural tradition, but it's, it's anything but simple. It's, it's kind of complicated and it sort of twists around and gets tangled up. And it, it's a bit strange that Milton's uh, tract in favor of free speech or against licensing uh, written works is called the Areopagitica. Okay, so let's start with, first things first, the Areopagus is a hill. Areopagus is like a rock in Athens. You can still go there. Nowadays, it's uh, full of uh, students and tourists smoking and drinking uh, cans of beer and looking out over Athens because there's a beautiful view of Athens and the Acropolis, which is quite near. In the ancient world, it was called the Areopagus, which literally means the hill of Ares, because there was a myth that Ares, the god, uh, stood trial for murder on that hill. Um, in the archaic period in Athens, uh, sort of before, you know, before the classical period, the, the so-called golden age, um, the Areopagus is probably, it's one of the most powerful um, institutions in Athens. It's composed of former archons. So the, there's a panel of archons, and in the archaic period, they really are the most powerful institution in Athens. And once you serve as an archon, you get to be on the Areopagus. So you retire as an archon, and then you can hold your position, your chair on the Areopagus for life. Um, now, once we get into the classical period, there's a revolution, there's a democratic system, they're, they're sidelined. The Areopagus is kind of sidelined, but it's still around. It's still a respected institution, and it seems to have a, a slightly conservative reputation. Even though the archons are now selected by lot, it's still one of the only um, offices in Athens that you can hold for life rather than just for one year. So some people see them as a, as a kind of, a conservative bastion. And that's why I say it's slightly unexpected that, that Milton comes to call his, his work in favor of free speech, the Areopagitica. Now, the reason he calls it that is because there's another work with the Areopagus in its name, written in Athens, in 4th century Athens, in the 350s BC, if you want to know precisely. And this is by Isocrates. Isocrates is different from Socrates. I, I always have to tell my students it's not it sounds like an iPhone app that asks you annoying moral questions. It's not that he's a different guy, Isocrates. He's an orator and he's an educator, and he, he thinks of himself as a, as a philosopher. He uses that word. Um, modern scholars think, okay, you're not quite as clever as Plato, but you know, he's an interesting uh, chap. And um, Isocrates writes this piece called the Areopagiticus, which it, it's written as if it's a speech, but we don't think he ever delivered it. And in this speech, he's trying to persuade the Areopagus. He's trying to appeal to the Areopagus and to the people of Athens uh, to sort of restore what he calls true democracy. Democratia. And for him, true democracy involves more guidance from the wise, especially the Areopagus. So as you might have guessed, Isocrates is a little bit of a conservative. He's not a full-on oligarch. He doesn't want to overthrow the democracy. Those people had been kind of discredited by the, the rule of the 30 tyrants after the end of the Peloponnesian War. 
So Isocrates knows he can't go there. He can't just openly say, I don't like democracy. But he says, yeah, democracy is great. But what we really need is democracy, which is led by some wise people. And, and they're the Areopagus. So all this, I'm still, uh, I'm sure you're still probably sh- scratching your head and thinking, well, why is Milton using this as a title for his track against licensing? And it's a bit, un- it's a bit strange that, that this happens. And, and I'll just read you the bit when, um, Milton gets to this, which is re- very early on in the Areopagitica. So he, uh, Milton says to the powers of England at the time, know how much better I find ye esteem it to imitate the old and elegant humanity of Greece than the barbaric pride of a Hunnish and Norwegian stateliness. And out of these ages, to whose polite wisdom and letters we owe that we are not Goths and Jutlanders, I could name him who from his private house wrote that discourse to the Parliament of Athens that persuades them to change the form of democracy, which was then established. <laughs> okay, so basically he's saying, Milton is saying, we owe our civilization to the Greeks. We owe it to the Greeks the fact that we're not barbarians. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, pass over that. And, and then he's saying, one of the benefits of the fact that we, we derive our culture from the Greeks rather than these people that Milton doesn't like so much uh, is that we can have a culture of the type that Isocrates uh, participated in. And it's a culture where you can actually speak truths or have your say to your betters, to people who are higher up in society. So it's a bit weird because uh, the argument Isocrates is actually making is kind of a, it's a slightly anti-democratic one. But Milton isn't really focused on that. He's just focused on the idea that this guy Isocrates wrote this thing about the Athenians, which was basically, you know, um, um, advocating political reform, quite a strong form of political reform. And Milton thinks that that's admirable. And he returns in the essay, he he actually sort of goes into a survey of ancient history, but he returns to the point that, you know, the the Athenians, who everyone in that day sort of esteemed quite highly, the learned men of England at the time esteemed Athens quite highly. He says, you know, the Athenians did not, have strong forms of censorship. They only censored, according to Milton, um, you know, impiety, things that were irreligious. And Milton actually agrees that we should do, we should do that. We should, uh, we, we can censor certain types of religious opinion like popery. Um, but other than that, Milton says the Athenians basically didn't censor and they didn't have a licensing system. And so that's, that's why he calls it the Areopagitica because he's kind of, he thinks he's writing in the tradition of Isocrates. He's speaking truth to power. And as I say, it's another example of how, you know, it's not a simple process whereby I saw um, Milton just had this idea democracy is great because he read this Greek text. Actually, the Greek text he read was slightly anti-democratic. But it's the the general idea, uh, the vague idea of you can actually exercise free speech in this polity is what he picks up and and that helps him make his arguments in in his day. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I think Milton talks about... um, uh, impiety and also obscenity is things that can justly be censored, um, but censored after publication, um, not before publication. And um, he also feels very strongly that um, when absolutely everything is subjected to censorship, it means that the people who are doing the censoring are liable to be completely uneducated busybodies who will have no capacity for judging whether whether an author's works are worthy of being read or not. And of course, I disagree with Milton on the idea that there are certain works that are that should just be censored after publication and should not be permitted to be read. Of course, whether or not they're worthy of 
of how worthy they are of being read by specific people is a, is another question, but that's a, a question of choice. But the Areopagitica is specifically about a pre-publication system of, of censorship. And he explicitly compares this to, to the Spanish Inquisition and the kinds of uh, and the Pope's, um, the Vatican's index of forbidden books, and that kind of very strict system of that very strict system of censorship that doesn't even allow things to be published and get out there. So he says, publish everything, and then afterwards, if something needs to be censored, we can censor it. Then we can we can punish the author at that point. And of course, that's where I depart from him. But the specific plea against pre-publication censorship is, I think, completely uh, completely justified and correct. And he was absolutely right about the effects that the Licensing Act would have and the effects that it had after that act um, lapsed 50 years later. There's just so many things in this in this uh, tract, in this treatise, that reminded me of the free speech debate going on nowadays. I mean, I just reread it today. And um, the first time I read it, I remember finding it difficult because, you know, it's 17th century English. And I think the first time I read it, I was expecting him to be a slightly earlier version of John Stuart Mill. And in some ways he is, but in other ways it's, it's very different. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, the context in which Milton wrote and the, the sort of psychological and mental world in which Milton lived was a, was a much more intensely religious one. So the way that he argues is often uh, from authority, from the, the, the authority of biblical texts or uh, ancient precedents, which is unfamiliar to us. But, you know, there's a lot that shines through, and I think you've mentioned a few of them already. I mean, one of them that is interesting is the, the limits to, to free speech. He, he, this is something that comes up nowadays a lot, because if you're arguing for free speech, then often you're put on the defensive because people immediately say, well, you wouldn't allow this to happen. You wouldn't allow people to say this, would you? And then you have to sort of say, and I think, you know, you should be reasonable. <laughs> there probably are limits to free speech. Usually you have to say, of course, I wouldn't allow that. I think free speech should stop at incitement to violence, for example. And I, I actually do, do believe that. But it's interesting. Milton has this argumentative move as well. And he uh, says, you know, popery and open superstition is what he admits shouldn't be allowed. Um, and then he, he says, in ancient Greece, I find that they... Um, they only they only censored two things: blasphemy and things which were libelous. So libel and, and blasphemy, and it's it's a little bit controversial to what extent the Athenians actually censored those things, but that seems fair. But yeah, popery and open superstition is kind of interesting because it's, I think it's a, it's a healthy reminder that um, you know even the things that you think that you might think oh that's really beyond the pale. Another age may be laughing at us. I mean, it's not an argument, not necessarily an argument against thinking X is beyond the pale, because maybe it really is. But, but you know, people like Milton obviously thought that popery, just Catholicism, was completely beyond the pale at that point. And um, I think relatively recently they discovered a, a, a letter from, or, or a piece of writing by John Locke, where it seemed that John Locke was arguing that uh, we should tolerate Catholic ideas. <laughs> and it, it, I think they found it because he'd actually suppressed this piece of writing. He didn't want it to come out because it was so controversial. So that's that's kind of a, an interesting, um, I, I, I guess, echo or preview of modern debates. I mean, I am I I describe myself as a free speech absolutist, um, and that's partly because I understand free speech to mean 
to mean that uh, the expression of opinion in the broadest sense. So, for example, creating an artwork is also an expression of opinion, or telling someone to fuck off is is also an expression of opinion. Um, whereas, I don't think of acts in which you are committing a crime, but you are using speech purely as as not for its own sake, but as the means of committing that crime. So, for example, if you are um, filming child pornography, then the crime for me is not in the expression of opinion. So I wouldn't think that, I don't think it should be criminal, for example, to create, to use child sex dolls or to speak in favor of pedophilia. I'm taking the most unpopular topic that I can think of. Um, or to create anime or cartoon uh, versions of um, pedophilia scenes. What you shouldn't be doing is, is sexually abusing children. So if you are filming actual live pornography involving children, what you are doing is sexually abusing children. Um, and that is the crime. The crime is not in the expression of the opinion. Um, so likewise, uh, I, likewise, if you uh, claim to be a doctor and then you remove somebody's appendix, you have committed a crime if you're not a doctor. But speech is, um, the problem is not the speech itself, but what you are using the speech to do specifically. The problem is not in what you think and believe and are, are and are therefore expressing. So that that for me is the distinction. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think that's pretty much where I am as well. And I, I think the way I think about it is, you know, the point at which speech becomes action. So another example, which I think is similar to the ones you've used is, you know, I'm a mob boss and, you know, something you've done has pissed me off. So I get my heavies to go and uh, make sure you're swimming with the fishes. Right. And, and then, you know, the police find an email or I don't know, I don't know how the modern mob boss operates, but they find a text from me saying to my heavies, you know, knock off this person. And I get arrested for, you know, instructing and I uh, instructing this person to kill you. And, and I could just say, well, that was just speech. But of course, in that in that situation, I know that my lackey is going to actually kill you. And so by making that order, I'm effectively using that person as a kind of arm, you know, as, a, as, a, as an instrument. So I've actually acted. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I put put the limits somewhere similar. But anyway, I mean, there's a there's a complicated conversation to have around limits. I just think it's it's this is a healthy reminder. You know, the, the way that Milton is obviously, you know, he's saying, okay, of course we shouldn't tolerate popery, and to us that just seems absurd. You know, that some people can't be Catholics. I mean, obviously this is in the context of the the Reformation, but still, it just seems crazy to us. And they're, they're all Christians, of course, you know, so what's the problem? But, um, you know, so we, so there's just a healthy reminder that we often put these, these limits in, in, in places that later ages, uh, come to th- see as ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and it is quite a difficult, it is a difficult read if you're not accustomed to prose from that era. In fact, even if you are, he's a, a very, a dense prose writer, and it's densely allegorical uh, in many places. You really need to read a. Um, you really need to read an edition with footnotes, um, like the Norton edition, in order to just be able to follow what he's talking about. And his sentences are often extremely um, convoluted. His just 
uh, structurally and semantically. Yeah, I mean, that's this is a, if I can put another plug for classics, I mean, this is a reason to, I think, study these things because you, you are more familiar with some of the imagery that he's using and some of the references. Uh, but, you know, reading Paradise Lost is difficult too. If you if you know a bit of Virgil, if you've had some exposure to the ancient epic tradition, you can kind of see what Milton's doing. He's very adventurous in the way that he flings around English words and changes the structure. And his prose is quite flowery as well. There are so many other arguments in this that, that just jumped out at me as, as very similar to the debate we're, we're having now. I mean, basically, he's got the idea that free speech helps you discover new ideas. He's licensing, he talks about how it hinders the discovery of truths, both religious and or wisdom, both religious and civil. Um, he's, he talks about how it's just it's just right to be able to speak your mind. Um, what can be more fair than uh, when somebody speaks not privily from house to house, but openly uh, by writing to the world what his opinion is, what his reasons, and wherefore that which is now thought cannot be sound. Uh, and then there's all these arguments against censorship. And, and again, it's striking to me. Um, I don't know if Patrick Lee Miller, who's an ancient philosopher, has written for Ario. Um, I think he, he definitely written for Colette um, and other sort of free thinking uh, um, magazines, but he's written a lot about this idea that, you know, we, we don't really have, people are, are, can be quite exaggerated in their fears about ideas because they seem to have this model of the mind where the, the idea goes in and then you just sort of have to go along with it. It's almost like everybody is that is that sort of low-ranking member of, a, of the mafia I was talking about, that, you know, some idea gets put in my head and I automatically have to just act that in the world. And Patrick Lee Miller says, no, 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 it's more like, it's more like we can digest ideas. And the ideas come in and we, and we can, we have this capacity in our mind to say, you know what, I actually have looked at that idea and I disagree with it. And Milton has this idea too. He says, books are as meats and viands are, so foodstuffs. Some are good, some of evil substance. Wholesome meats to a vitiated stomach differ little or nothing from unwholesome. And best books to a naughty mind are not unappliable to occasions of evil. So basically what he's saying is it, it also matters who you are and what you're, you're doing with these books. Because the argument for censorship had been like, what's going to happen if people read this bad stuff? And he's saying, well, maybe nothing. It depends on who you are, right? Um, and then he's talking about the hurt in banning and licensing. It's, he calls it the greatest discouragement and affront that can be offered to learning and to learned men. So there you get this sort of ch idea of a chilling effect, which I think is a very accurate one. And organizations like Heterodox Academy have talked about in the modern university. And then he, ha he even has this idea of um, censorship is patronizing to people. It's patronizing to people to, to treat them as sort of fragile beings, and especially the lower class people. I, I think this just comes straight out of spite when Mil Milton says this. Um, he says, um, nor is it to the common people less than a reproach to censor them. For if we be so jealous over them as that we dare not trust them with an English pamphlet, what do we but censor them for a giddy, vicious, and ungrounded people in such a sick and weak state of faith and discretion as to be able to take nothing down but through the pipe of a licensor? So he's saying, you know, if you're censoring people, you're treating them like they're just these fragile beings, like almost sort of sick children, and you have to kind of feed them bits of ideas, like bits of food in a very sort of careful and managed way. So anyway, so those are just a few of the things. And there's even more in that, I think, that, you know, despite the, uh, as you were rightly saying, you know, the, the very different pro style and the, the different, very different ideological and psychological and religious world that he inhabited, um, a lot of these arguments are, are very similar to the ones we're having again today. 
Yeah, I, I, there are so many gems. I, um, I, he he talks about one of the things he says is that um, if we are going to censor um, new books and pamphlets, that implies that we think we already know which ideas are the best ideas. We we think we've already attained some kind of state of perfect knowledge. Um, I'm just looking up this quotation. Oh, yeah. He who thinks we are to pitch our tent here, i.e. Um, to say that we have now a- attained a state in which we know what is true and what is false, and therefore we're in a good position to judge what should be published and what should not. He who thinks we are to pitch our tent here and have attained the utmost prospect of reformation that the mortal glass wherein we contemplate can show us, glass meaning mirror, till we come to beatific vision, that man by this very opinion declares that he is yet far short of truth. So by actually saying that you think that we um, that you are able to judge what is true and what is not true, and therefore what deserves to be printed, that in itself um, reveals your ignorance. Uh, lots of ideas like that, which are really um, are very striking. And especially when you look back and you think that people were arguing that they had sufficient knowledge to judge at that stage in 1644, um, when they still believed in the humoral theory of medicine, for example. They didn't know what atoms were. Um, it it really puts things in a in perspective. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that you know the only exception. I think the only thing he thinks we do know for sure is that Protestantism is correct. Milton <laughs> <laughs> was some kind of Puritan, and this is why you know he says, okay, the limits of free speech are popery. Um, but uh, to be fair, I think that the way that he thinks about this is that actually this is another argument for free speech in his book, because for him, the Catholic Church, the traditional church had sort of suppressed free opinion and it stopped people thinking in an independent way about, about God and religion, which Milton thought were this, the most important things of all. And so for him, even that, even his sort of quite strong emphasis on Protestantism is, is something that goes hand in hand with his commitment to free speech, even though it's slightly hypocritical in the end that he excludes popery. Yeah, he also talks about, I mean, I think this is another quite strong part of the um, of the Areopagitica is that he talks about um, the impossibility of um, regulating people's behavior, make changing people, making them more moral, molding them to be the kinds of uh, citizens that we would like them to be by forbidding them from um, reading certain things. And he says, um, if we think that to regulate printing, thereby to rectify manners, and today we might think of, for example, making people less racist or less homophobic or um, transphobic or whatever it might be. Um, and he talks about it as rectifying manners. So I think that is the, that is the Miltonic equivalent of um, what we see today as being a good ally fighting for social justice, etc. He says, if we think to regulate printing, thereby to rectify manners, we must regulate all recreations and pastimes, all that is delightful to man. So, yeah, so that's that's another thing. I mean, it's another argument that's familiar, as you say, that uh, it's, it's just pointless in the end. You can't 
you can't sort of micromanage what everybody is saying and thinking. Um, and, uh, and I think combined with that is, is a positive argument for the, the robustness of truth, uh, you might say. So there's a passage where he says, uh, for who knows not that truth is strong next to the Almighty? She needs no policies, that is the truth. She needs no policies, nor stratagems, nor licensings to make her victorious. Those are the shifts and the defenses that error uses against her power. So he's saying, you know, the truth will out if we let it breathe. And actually trying to shut things down, trying to shut debate down, that's the kind of thing you do if you're actually, if you kind of secretly know you're wrong. Uh, because otherwise, you know, the implications, you just argue against the other view. But if you kind of think, oh, maybe I'm in the wrong about this, then you have more of a, an incentive to actually shut the conversation down. Yeah, and his most famous, perhaps his most famous quotation from the Arupajitika also um, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about the difference between uh, self-censoring because you are observing the conventions of a formal setting, like a seminar or a debate, um, and self-censoring because you feel that if you speak the truth, there will be consequences if you speak the truth as as far as you know it, when he says, give me the liberty to know, to utter and to argue freely, according to conscience, above all liberties. So it's a evergreen, an evergreen statement. Yep, very, very much so. I'd like to talk, um, I know that you don't have uh, that much time because it's already very late where you are. Um, because James is joining us from New Zealand. So there's a massive time difference between us. But I'd like to talk a little bit um, uh, before we um, end about the two two different types of or concepts of representation, which it was a subject of your ARIO article, which was an absolutely fantastic article. Um, and I'm going to read the first two paragraphs of that article. And then I'd like you to just enlarge a little bit on, on that idea, um, because I think you have some really interesting things to say about the origins of the concept of representation, the way it was conceived in, um, or at least the Greek origins, the way it was conceived within Greek democracy, and the two different contradictory uh, ways in which it's being used nowadays. and the kinds of misunderstandings to which that leads. Let me read these two paragraphs. The idea of representation has been enjoying a boom of late. Of course, our modern democracies are representative ones, and the idea that our governments and parliaments should be representative has been around for a while. Increasingly, though, other groups of people are expected to be representative too from teaching staff at universities to the boards of corporations. There's even a feeling that the fictional worlds presented to us in books and films should be representative of the real world that we inhabit. These two concepts of representation are actually quite different, however. The first has been used in formal political institutions since ancient times, in an effort to make sure that it really is the people, or a good sample of the people, that is exercising political power. The second is more focused on the idea that specific groups, not just political institutions, but also companies, clubs and other organisations, 
should reflect the demographic makeup of society as a whole. Only the first concept is truly democratic. The second has taken on some of the prestige and legitimacy of democracy, but has very little to do with it. Could you talk a little bit about where that first conception of representative democracy comes from and how these two ideas differ and get confused in people's minds? Well, okay. So in, at, at the root, democracy, I'm, do, I'm doing etymology again here, but democracy at the root just means the power of the people, the the, the rule of the people, but the, the power of the people to affect its will. And it leaves, you know, the word itself, the concept itself leaves it very open as to what that, that means in particular. But one thing a lot of people think it should mean is that whoever's doing the ruling, if there has to be someone who's in power or, you know, being an official of some sort, uh, those people they should do things that track the will of the people in general. So that's the, that's the main democratic idea of representation, that the things that the government does or the things that the city-state does, whatever, they, they should track the, the will of the people. And then there's a whole bunch of philosophical problems about what you actually mean by the will of the people. But, it, but it's basically about policy. It's about ideas, the things we should do, the, the, the things that we're doing, the ideas that we're putting out, the de- declarations we're making as a community. They should, in some sense, reflect uh, what people on the whole think. And how do you do that? So then this is where you get into institutions. How do you actually make sure that that happens? And in the ancient world, they had a whole host of mechanisms. You know, they had assembly meetings. Citizens could just turn up on the on the hill of the Pnyx in Athens. I mean, okay, male citizens, but, uh, you know, that, that was one way in which they tried to make sure that the what the state was doing was tracking the, the, the will of the citizens. Uh, sometimes they were allotted. They, they used random allotment. Um, and sometimes they would also use civic subdivisions. So Athens was broken up into various different tribes, for example. They had 10 tribes, and that was part of their democratic constitution was that everyone was in one of these 10 tribes. They also each came from a certain unit a vill- uh, called a deme. It was a village or a part of the uh, Athenian city itself, or borough, or, or, or rural village. And I think the, the point of these civic subdivisions in the ancient world, there's a lot going on there. Uh, but one of the things they they seem to be doing is is partly this idea of representation. It's it's easier to see that you're uh, getting a sample of the whole population if you break them up into into groups. Now uh, nowadays, and even you know by later parts of Greek antiquity, uh, later parts of the Greek classical period, they had developed more sophisticated mechanisms like allotment machines. Uh, simple allotment machines. Nowadays, we have sort of better ways of tracking the, the, the views of the people. We have polling and so on and so forth. But um, I, I think w- what's happened now with the debate about representation is we've allowed these these proxies to sort of take over, right? So you think, well, well wh- wh- what do people think? Well, we don't know. I mean, <laughs> one thing you could do is just ask them. And this is what I think if we're talking about uh, representation at the state level, we really should just sort of keep asking the people, poll them, have a referenda and things like that. But one thing you might think is, oh, well, we can have representation in an identitarian sense. So, for example, um, you know, I'm a man or, or I'm a woman. I want to have a woman or a man uh, or I'm uh, black. and I would like to have a black politician or a Maori politician or whatever, what have you or, you know, any other identitarian um Thing I'm a French Canadian, so I would like to have a French Canadian representing me in in, in the federal parliament. Now, the, you know, as soon as we start talking about that, it should be clear that there there's some issues with this because 
you know, even though there may be some kind of rough relationship between, you know, people of different communities, you know, I, I, you may have more in common with a French Canadian than an English Canadian. It's not going to be a perfect fit. In fact, you might have completely different views. I mean, you know, you, you have, if you're a French Canadian, you could vote for the leader of the Bloc Québécois. You could vote for Maxime Bernier, who was a, who was a libertarian, you know, so. It's not actually that helpful to think in terms of these identitarian categories because basically they're proxies. And, and, and that's, that's just one problem. And they, these problems just multiply once you take this idea of representation out of the political sphere, out of the sphere of formal institutions. And people start talking about, well, I think this, this film, this fictional world should have a balance of people in it. Um, and yeah, I just don't really know what to do with those claims except to say, I, I think the reason people think that is there's some kind of holdover from, from the positive sheen that the idea of representation has in democracy. So I kind of agree that it's a good idea to have representation in the idea sense in democracy because it's almost built into the idea of democracy itself. But um, that's very different from saying, you know, everybody in this football team, you know, this, this soccer team or this, uh, or this physics department or whatever it is, it has to sort of mirror the Democrat, the, the, dem- the demography, the demographic breakdown of, of the country as a whole or of the city or, or whatever. Yeah, I think that I am, um, I'm more sympathetic to the idea of mirroring, um, the demography when we're talking about arts, for example, where I think it is, um, it is just nice to, s- there, there is something useful about seeing a wide variety of people represented somewhere. Um, it can make the place feel more welcoming. So, for example, um, one of my close friends who is an Anglican vicar, um, who is always tr- hoping to encourage more black people to come to his church. His church is in an area with a fairly large um, proportion of um, black people. I'm going to just go ahead and say black people rather than BAME, because I think BAME is uh, is just a really ugly word and also very confusing to people as to what particularly it means. And in this case, it really is about skin color, because that is what you can see when you look at the poster, or when you see photos of the church, or when you see photos of events. Um, if I, I'm not a Christian, but if I were there, um, I would be technically, I'm a member of a minority ethnic community, but it, you can't see that from a photo. And so therefore, it doesn't help with the representation. And he would like that because he thinks that that would Make just uh, make the image of the church seem more I- inclusive, but of course you can't force people to come to a church event, and so therefore you can't kind of go down onto the street, hijack a number of people, and ask them to come and be in photos. That's tokenism. It, your photos also need to represent the actual situation. So I have a little bit more. I have more sympathy with that, but much less so when it comes to politics because uh, you know if you said my political opinions need to be represented by for example someone who has indian heritage then you could turn around and say well dinesh d'souza can represent you and i would not be at all happy with that solution so i think that it's um it really makes very little sense in the political arena where people care about other people's opinions and they care about being represented by those who agree with their views rather than those who just simply happen to be the same ethnicity as them. 
And we see this again and again. People who are left-wingers are not going to um, vote for the Tory party just because there are a number of um, people of colour among their front benches. They're not going to support Priti Patel just because she's a woman of colour, um, because she's conservative and they don't agree with her conservative views. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too dismissive of this idea that the, that uh, you can have groups which look for you know this kind of what they see as representation just because you know there are sort of communities of of interest and and the fancy statisticians nowadays can cleave up great britain to various groups of people but i mean one of the things that's interesting with that is that those groups of people that they divide that they they can see that they cluster their interests and their voting patterns cluster together they don't always map onto the identitarian categories that people tend to talk about a lot nowadays, right? So it's it, it's not always, you know, are, are, do you have black skin? It's more something like, um, do you come from a, an urban area or a rural area? Those are the things which would seem to be more predictive. But no, with, with the, the church thing, I mean, um, I think this is an objection I had on the excellent uh, comment section of area when I put that article up. Um, so I don't want to, the, the article wasn't necessarily an argument to say, you know, people who would like that kind of, um, diversity in their organization or in their church, that's bad. There's no possible reason to, to think those things. Um, I'm sort of remaining agnostic on, on the, those kind of things. I mean, I have sort of thoughts about that. Like maybe we should not emphasize uh, sort of visible differences as much and things, but okay. I, I understand their arguments for that kind of thing. I, I think the point of the article was just to say to the extent that, that those kinds of claims of representation draw upon these democratic claims and the sort of positive sheen of democracy, I think that that's an illegitimate move. I don't think it's really like democratic representation at all. Mm, yeah, thank you. No, I completely agree. Um, I mean, I think that it's it's in itself, all other things being equal, I enjoy seeing a more kind of just diverse range of human phenotypes um, within any area of human life. But I don't think that that should be something that we should prioritize over uh, more important things like, for example, people's policy um, policy proposals on a political level, their political ideas. Um, and I also don't think we should prioritize it above their skill in a particular branch. For example, um, they are now want to um, stop uh, orchestras from holding blind auditions because um, not enough there are not enough people of color playing in orchestras. And the reasons for this are probably are likely to be socioeconomic. I think I agree with Tomiwa Owaladi's um, analysis of this. Uh, Tomiwa points out that if you are from an immigrant family, a first or second uh, generation immigrant family, you probably don't have a lot of inherited wealth of the kind that you need if you're going to support your child through um, through conservatory and through music training and through the classical music world where traditionally people earn very, very little money and it's extremely hard to make a living and get them to the point at which they will join an orchestra. Probably, if you have less money, uh, or if you have a kind of value system that values um, independence in your children and 
uh, career success, you're going to send your children more towards an area like medicine or law. And that's why we see, for example, young black men are overrepresented among junior doctors. I think that twice the number of twice the proportion of junior doctors are black uh, than the general population, but extremely underrepresented within orchestras among violin players. And um, just removing blind auditions and saying, well, a certain proportion of violinists need to be black, whether they play well or not, is just seems to me like a very perverse um, way of solving that quote-unquote problem, if it even is a problem, how people in an orchestra look or what skin colour they have. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a sort of, uh, that's an argument that Thomas Sowell has uh, pushed quite hard, you know, that um, often when you have these differences in in, um, numbers, um, it it can be a reflection of just different groups taking a special interest in certain things. I mean, you know, Canadians for a long time were outrageously overrepresented among professional ice hockey players in the United States. And you could say, oh, well, there's, you know, systemic discrimination in favor of Canadians. Well, no, it's actually because <laughs> for obvious reasons, Canadians are more interested in ice hockey. Okay, not everything is like that, of course, you know. Sometimes there is actual discrimination, conscious or, or unconscious. But, yeah, there are other reasons, uh, there are other ways in which you can explain numerical disparities. But just finally on the, um, on the point about representation again, I mean, um, I've had this argument with Musa Algarbi, who's a, a researcher and he's active in the Heterodox Academy movement. I think he's a sociologist. And I, I think that he sees, he sees diversity in sort of ethnic and sexual and other senses um, as part and parcel of the sort of Heterodox Academy mission to have epistemic diversity, in other words, to have intellectual diversity. Because he thinks that, you know, people have different experiences and they come from different places and, you know, they've, they've had, they've had different life paths. And that means that they come to university and they bring different ideas with them or they come to organizations and they bring different ideas with them. And I, and I basically agree. And I can see an argument for that kind of diversity of ideas. I can see a strong argument for that kind of diversity of ideas, even though it has to be balanced against some of the other things that you're talking about, like meritocracy. But I, I would say that again, um, I'm not sure that the identity categories that we talk about most are really that good a predictor of people having different ideas. At best, they're just a kind of proxy. They're just sort of saying, well, we can take a bet that this guy's Canadian, he'll like ice hockey. But maybe he doesn't, you know, and, and you know, maybe he doesn't like this politician, maybe he likes someone completely different, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah, thank you. Um, one other, uh, changing the topic um, quite a lot now, um, uh, one other thing that I... Uh, learned from reading your articles recently was that there has been some controversy over the death of Socrates. So not I, Socrates, but our famous friend Socrates, um, as to why he was killed and whether or not Socrates was an opponent of democracy. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a super interesting one because um, I think a year or two ago, I saw Jeffrey Miller who, you know, is an evolutionary biologist and someone who's pretty big in the intellectual dark web, I guess you could call it. Jeffrey Miller tweeted a picture of the famous painting of Socrates drinking hemlock um, by Jacques-Louis David, I believe. And he, he said, his, his comment was, this is the first, something like, this is the, this is the original example of cancel culture. The idea that Socrates was executed by the Athenians and this was, a, this was an example of cancel culture. 
And I thought that was very interesting because it, it's, it's an incredibly long argument that's gone all the way through Western culture because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, um, for a long time, uh, the aristocratic leisure class authors in the, in the West who wrote about ancient history and history in general, they saw Athenian democracy as mob rule. And the worst thing that they thought that this, this mob government had done was execute Socrates because they thought of Socrates as this ideally virtuous man. They read Plato. Plato, the student of Socrates, represents Socrates in this way. And so this is the ultimate indictment of Athenian democracy. Now, the truth is more complex than that. And my former advisor, Josh Ober, who's a great scholar of Athenian democracy, he basically took the view, which is, it tends to be the sort of left liberal view on this, that yes, the Athenians were wrong to kill Socrates. Uh, that was a big mistake. It's a lot on their record. But, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, 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 you have to look at the context uh, and everything that happened at the time. And one thing you have to bear in mind is that this was just after the, uh, a, a defeat in this, in this, uh, in this war, the Peloponnesian War against the Spartans. And, um, after the Peloponnesian War ended, uh, as I mentioned, there was this regime of the 30 so-called tyrants. This was a very restrictive oligarchy. These tyrants ended up actually prescribing people. That is, they sort of put their names on lists and actually put them to death. They killed a lot of people. Um, and some of the 30 tyrants were quite closely associated with people like Socrates and Plato. Um, Critias, for example, was, uh, I think, the great uncle of Plato. Uh, Charmides, also someone closely associated with, with, with Plato. And so after, after the 30 tyrants are overthrown by a democratic revolution, the Athenians put out an amnesty and they say, anyone involved with the 30, it's okay. We're not going to prosecute anybody except for the 30 themselves, which is actually like an incredibly, you know, the Athenian Democrats sort of are very proud of this. It's an incredibly generous settlement. They're not going to take revenge. They're not going to look back in anger. Um, they're just going to sort of let things pass. And then in that context of 399, only four years after the 30 tyrants are expelled by the democratic uprising, Socrates gets executed. And so Socrates is still around in these years. Uh, from what we can tell of Plato's reports of his teachings, Socrates is very critical of the democracy. It's not entirely clear how much of that is Plato and how much of it is Socrates, but it seems that that intellectual tradition was very, was very critical of the democracy. So basically, the Athenians have just gone through this traumatic war. They've gone through this. They've gone through this equally traumatic but brief uh, regime of the thirty tyrants. And then there's this annoying guy still around, uh, talking about how democracy is bad. Now, they still shouldn't have killed him, but obviously, uh, you know, you can. It makes it a little bit more understandable what was going on there. They actually charged him with impiety, with uh, introducing new gods and corrupting the youth. But it seems like. That's prob that, that's that's probably a way of getting around the ban on prosecuting people for things to do with the thirty if they weren't uh, members of the thirty themselves. In other words, and we know this from a later author, uh, Eskenes, he actually says this in one of his speeches: "You Athenians, you uh, prosecuted Socrates the philosopher because of his involvement with the with the thirty tyrants, or because he educated the thirty tyrants." So, so it seems like what what really happened there is that the Athenians went after Socrates because they were still pissed off about the 30 tyrants and his, his uh, perceived um, involvement with the 30 tyrants, and they wanted to get at him uh, by some other way. And, you know, there's also things like, if you look at the circumstances of the trial uh, themselves, as reported by Plato, uh, Socrates, you know, he's 
he, he doesn't play it well. You know, he could have just gone to the trial and said, I'm really sorry about all this. I need to be more humble. Or, you know, even after they voted him guilty by, by a slim margin, he had the opportunity of putting a counter penalty forward. It was either death, and then they said, Socrates, what would you suggest instead of the death penalty? And he said, how about free meals for life, because I'm such a great philosopher and I'm educating the Athenians. And then they said, okay, maybe I'll just pay a fine, but my friends will pay it. Right? So things like that didn't, didn't help his case. And the Athenians were really left with no, with no option, you might say, in that situation. You know, I, either to just be insulted by this guy or to condemn him to death. So, so it's, a, it's a much, so the whole Socrates thing is much more complicated than it seems. However, I mean, I've, in the past few years, it's kind of interesting because I always took this very strongly democratic view of Socrates that maybe he didn't, you couldn't say he had it coming and that Hemlock was too good for him. But, um, you know, that, <laughs> uh, there, there, were, there were some context you need to go into. But uh, I think the past few years have, been, <laughs> have made me more sympathetic to this idea that there, there was a bit, of, um, a bit of craziness, a bit of cancel culture mob mentality uh, among the Athenians, and even though they had this this democratic system, which was quite organized, it, it wasn't just an online mob. It was actually structured. You know, when people talk about cancel culture, they're often thinking about something uh, that happens entirely within civil society. The Athenians had a much more structured uh, process. And on the whole, it seems like their system bears up fairly well if you compare it to later systems of justice, say, in medieval Europe. If you look at, you know, medieval trials about heresy and, and things like that, the the Athenians seem to prosecute fewer people for that, for impiety and heresy than other traditional societies. Uh, but, you know, as the Socrates case shows, they do sometimes get it wrong and, um, and they end up killing Socrates. You know, whether that's an indictment of democracy, as I say, that's a different thing. Cause what you need to do there is compare it to other systems in which you have less democratic legal systems. And there, they don't seem to be immune to this kind of panic either. James, I also wanted to ask you, um, since we're talking a little bit about the modern modern day uh, censorship, cancel culture, opposition to free speech, etc., um, what is the situation like uh, on campuses in New Zealand? Um, do you think there is a similar level of self censorship or of um, caution, or or do you feel more free? How would you characterize? Um, teaching in New Zealand specifically. Um, tell us something about that. Yeah, no, I mean, maybe uh, I was going to say ask me again in a couple of months because um, I'm involved with Heterodox New Zealand, which is sort of a subset of Heterodox Academy in New Zealand, obviously. And we're actually, so this is myself and a few of my colleagues at different New Zealand universities. Um, we're going to do a version of the or we're doing now, uh, we're administering now a version of the Heterodox Academy Campus Expression Survey. And this is a survey that's been used in the States, uh, I think in various different contexts. And it has various questions about, you know, who you are, tries to get an idea of demographic profiles of the respondents. And it also asks questions like, you know, how comfortable would you feel talking about uh, gender or sexuality or race or controversial topics in the classroom? So when those results come in, we'll have a more objective idea of what's going on here. My subjective impression is that New Zealand is similar to the rest of the Anglophone world in the way that things are going and have been going. Uh, as often with New Zealand, I have to say, uh, it's usually a couple years behind the trends elsewhere just because it's quite far away. But, you know, modern technology and all the rest makes these things change much more quickly and makes these trends travel much more uh, readily than they did in the past. 
Um, I wouldn't say it's as bad as it seems to be in some parts of the States. I'm not even sure if it's as bad as it is in the UK, but we have had a few incidents. Um, uh, I think a couple of years ago now, w- there was a pretty high profile deplatforming. This was Don Brash. He was a former leader of the, the major center-right party in New Zealand, the National Party. Uh, and he was going to come to a university, Massey University in Palmerston North, and give a talk. And this talk was canceled. The vice chancellor of the university said that this was for uh, safety reasons. And it later emerged, because her emails were sort of spilled, that um, she'd done this because she disagreed with the political ideas of, of Brash. Um, so there have been there have been incidents of that sort, a few other deplatformings I could mention. Um, uh, how do I feel myself? I mean, I think that um, in my own uh, department, I feel very good. I have some close allies, uh, and I, I think that New Zealand is a pretty level-headed society. I mean, it's part, partly because it's very small and everybody knows each other. It's kind of it's quite hard to build up that amount of hatred if you actually see people face to face. So I think that that will help a lot, but it, it's very definitely part of this anglophone world, and because of that, the, a very similar form of this sort of anti-free speech um, ideology is here. And um, I'll just close by sort of uh, taking this beyond the universities because the current government of New Zealand, the Labour government, is trying to bring in at the moment a, a hate speech law, or, or they're re- revising the hate speech laws uh, in ways that I think are you know, very ambitious, so ambitious as to be completely impracticable. They're even talking about, you know, um, putting people in jail for three years is going to be the maximum penalty. And it's for stirring up or inciting hatred against people on the basis of a huge range of categories, including including their political identity and their religious identity. So, I mean, I just think that's incredibly dangerous because it seems like that would criminalize a whole swathe of ordinary political expression, you know, I hate the guys who vote for this party. That would seem to be enough because it's inciting hatred against a group defined by political orientation. So, uh, as I say, I think we're, I think that New Zealand is a little bit behind the trends in the, in the rest of the English speaking world, but we're, we're catching up pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, of course, with those kinds of laws that would in theory criminalize a broad swathe of people, they always also end up being, uh, being implemented in a, in a very haphazard or in a very discriminatory way. So in a, in effect, it's, it's a tool that you can use if you want to punish people anyway, because you're obviously not going to criminalize everybody who says they hate people who vote for the opposite party, or you would have, you know, half the country would be in jail. So, and there's something deeply just unjust about laws that can't be implemented across the board and are therefore just discretionary measures that can be taken against people when and as you you want to take you want to prosecute individuals it seems like a pretext that's exactly right that's exactly right i mean you just you you couldn't consistently uh prosecute if the law goes forward in the current form it would just be impossible to prosecute everybody who incited hatred against groups defined the, the, the sheer number of groups that they're trying to introduce into this law. So as you say, the only option is really to implement it uh, in this uneven way. And, you know, I, I probably don't even need to go into, you know, what, what kinds of expression are likely to be actually prosecuted and, and which types aren't. I mean, in a way it's kind of irrelevant. The point is just, the point is just that it's, that it's 
that it's unjust, it's un- unfair. It should be a, a level playing field. And, you know, back in the day, if you go back to the 50s, there were certain types of political expression which got you into trouble. And now there are other types of political expression that get you into trouble. And, and it's not it's not any better. I mean, it's still a departure from from this principle that people should be able to you know live freely and, and speak their minds. Yeah. Thank you so much, James. Um, is there anything that you have wanted to say or bring up that I haven't given you a chance to say? No, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, I've, I've expressed myself very freely. Thanks. And thanks for the, the time because I, um, I mean, I, I, I'm very interested, obviously, in the ancient world. I'm a professional ancient historian, but it's not often that I get, I get the space to sort of unload on, on the, the ancient perspective and all of these debates. Well, reading your articles, which are very lively and well-written, um, and listening to a couple of other podcast interviews that you've done has uh, really made me feel that I want to spend more time um, brushing up my quite sparse knowledge of, of the ancient Greeks, um, which is mostly mostly restricted to an, uh, an edition with notes of, of Homer that I read, a translation, and, um, and one course that I did as an undergraduate on Greek tragedy. But you really make a good case for the idea that understanding the Greeks would help us to understand politics and society more generally. I So I'm going to, um, as a new tradition, I'm going to end my podcast by asking my guests, all my guests, this question, which is, who else do you think that I should interview on this podcast and why? Uh, make a suggestion. <laughs> This is this is like the this is like the end of uh, end of trigonometry. Oh, okay. They had the same question format for a while, but I think it was you know what should we be talking about that we're not talking about. Ah, yes, no, it was what should we do Uh, because I've actually been on trigonometry, and that's what they asked me. Um, Yeah. Um, I'm just trying. I'm just trying to buy myself time because. um, Were were you thinking (laughs) of someone else interested in the ancient world, or um, how about Uh, Patrick Miller? I mentioned him already. Have you had him him on? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, well, that's a good one to start with because he's a he's actually an ancient philosopher. I mean, not like he's Plato. I mean, he works on Plato, um, and uh, he also has written some good good stuff about uh, free speech. And he's a, he's a pretty sort of mo- moderate, r- reasonable chap. And uh, he can, uh, if you like this sort of ancient modern vibe, he can continue that. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you everybody for listening. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Two for Tea. Your patronage helps to keep this podcast alive and flourishing. Your support means the world to me. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.